I'm here today with Sam Carrington. Hi, Sam. How are you? Very well, thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. No, you're very welcome. Very welcome. And you're the first time we've actually had a working stand-up comedian on the show, although I think a lot of people in learning development are kind of secret stand-up comedians, but they just weave it into the normal training course. Mm-hmm. But you're actually a proper stand-up comedian. That's correct. Yes, I am. I've been, I, I did my first gig seven years ago. I've done probably about a thousand gigs around the country, including three runs at um, Edinburgh and just about to, in the new year, go to Australia to do some shows, which I'm looking forward to. Wow, that's quite exciting. Yeah. So what what's your link to learning and development then? The link to learning and development is I spent 11 years working at ITV as a sales controller responsible for the digital output of ITV Breakfast. So that was shows like GMTV, Daybreak, and lastly, Good Morning Britain. I was running a team that was basically making money out of everything they did, either online or on mobile. Um, 11 years. Are you, are you to blame for Piers Morgan? Then? Uh, that, that's a good question. No, I'm not. I actually ended up making a few quid off the back of his shock jock tactics when people um, went on to watch them in order to be offended and overjoyed in quite equal measure. Actually, he's quite a, he's obviously very divisive, but and I'm not a, I'm not a fan of his. I met him once or twice, but uh, he's got something about him. He's obviously a bit of a sensationalist. But yeah, back to the training. So 11 years, quite a long time. Um, I'd been a comic then for about three or four years, it, w- it would have been. And thought about just doing comedy, but it's, it's a very, like lots of arts, it's, it's a very, what you call a wide pyramid in as much as you've got a few, you know, generals at the top of the tree, like Michael McIntyre, Al Murray, Mickey Flanagan, who make serious dough. But you haven't got to go very far down the rungs of the ladder to find people that are driving from London to Bristol for 90 quid. And you sort of think, yeah, I can't, I couldn't do that if I wanted to. Uh, so, but the interesting thing was there were parts of my day job at ITV as a sales controller that turned into a piece of cake when I started doing comedy. And I got thinking about the link between the two roles. And I'd already set up a comedy night called Smirk Experience that was running in a few venues in South London, when we still are, as well as some in central London. And a continuation of that was to come up with a series of workshops about what business can learn from comedy right and that's what we're going to talk about today really is what we in learning and development can learn from stand-up comedians or stand-up comedy yeah absolutely i i think there's quite a lot of crossover between that you mentioned about um you know comics uh, sorry um course leaders being you know comics as such and there are lots of similarities in fact people ask about what previous careers i've had that most prepared me for comedy and i was a teacher for about a year in a uh, very rough in a london school and uh, that was like being on stage for five hours every day that was exhausting and so there's definitely crossover i think between the um between the two elements of comedy and um, any form of training. Yeah, I've always felt that that on stage, as you said, Dan, 
there's definitely something around that in the sense that you you've got to provide the energy you can't just sit back and have a, a lazy day or anything you've got to be present you've got to provide the energy you've got to uh, put on a slightly false persona i guess because yeah. you are having to lead a room and if you're naturally a bit more introverted perhaps as someone like me is you have to push yourself so there is definitely something similar in that idea of being on stage. Plus, of course, you've got loads of people sitting and looking at you. Very much so. You know, I suppose it's that yeah. as well. <laughs> Very, Very literal. So I mean, the Edinburgh Fringe, you basically do the same hour show every day for a month. And you, you know, you start it all full of vim and vigor. And uh, by the end, just because, you know, you are a conscious human entity that needs stimulation it's very very easy to like you know, lots of comedy works on the sort of a funny thing happened to me on the way to the theater tonight is a sort of you know classic setup for a joke and there has to be like you're you have to be delivering it like you're in the now like you're in the moment and i think that's definitely true in um leading courses as well as it is being on stage it's got to be as you say energy and it is an act i think lots of comics uh, operate on a kind of exaggerated version of themselves there are some character acts who are like jekyll and hyde but most of them are just exaggerated versions of themselves and the same is definitely true of both i think Oh, absolutely. Um, although obviously we get to, we have to deal with hecklers in slightly different ways. We, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the, the funnily enough, the the overall theories are still uh, pretty similar. Actually, I do some stuff on, you know, awkward questions. I mean, you know, someone's it's pretty rare for someone in a professional situation to shout, you know, "You're crap, get off" or something like that. But you know. <laughs> There, you know, you can sometimes spot a bit of I don't know why I'm here type animosity that you have to deal with. Oh, definitely, yeah. And that kind of challenge that's perhaps a lot more passive. Mm. But there's definitely some kind of, as you say, it's not as explicit as your crap get off, but it th there is definitely that sort of awkward character that sometimes crops up or somebody who's being an awkward character in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Someone who's been in the job for 30 years and is just sat with their arms folded, looking out the window, not knowing why they're there. You know, I mean, there's um, there's things that you can do to get them on side as much as possible, like asking for their input. But there also comes a time when you've just got to kind of preach to the choir, if you see what I mean. And if there's 20 people in the room and 18 are listening, they're still pretty good numbers. And I think that might go back to my time teaching in Peckham. Well, teaching is the wrong word. It was more crowd control. If um, <laughs> if no one threw a chair, it was considered a successful lesson. And there'd be times when you would just have this on-running row with the naughtiest kid in the class who might well have been stoned when he walked into the lesson and nothing will change his mind about what you're doing while maybe two thirds of the room just watch this kind of pantomime unfold in front of them and they do nothing for 20 minutes. So that kind of taught me just preach to the choir. The ones that get it are the ones that will say nice things and want to come back. You're never going to change that person. So part of it, I think is a bit of a kind of a 
mindset, maybe to do with re resilience or something along those lines, which is something that we we uh, cover. There's so much to explore in, in you know, what you're saying at the moment as well. You're touching on many, many different subjects. But in order to keep this podcast down to sort of, you know, only a few hours, <laughs> should we sort of focus in on you, you, you've got top three tips that we in learning and development can learn from the stand up comedy world. So do you want to just tell us what those are and then we'll go through each one in a little bit more depth? Yeah, certainly. So the three I've got are uh, reading a room, the use of storytelling and performance assessment at the end. Okay, well, I can see some of that already probably links to what we've been talking about. Let's talk about reading a room first. I think I know what that means, but do you want to just say what, what how you understand that phrase? Yeah, absolutely. So as a uh, jobbing comic, you are booked to do a variety of gigs. It could be... I've done shows in a nightclub in front of 200 stag and hen that have been drinking since two that afternoon. And you're now in front of them at eight o'clock. Stag and hen are significant because they are the majority of people in the room won't have chosen to have come along to the show a normal comedy night people see a poster book a babysitter they invest their time they invest their money they want to laugh those most people in that room aren't in that category uh you i've done gigs at women's institutes i've done gigs at rugby clubs working man clubs in luton arts clubs in barns so there is a wide wide range of people that you are in front of and your job obviously is to stand up and connect with all of them make all of them laugh in the case of a comic or have them learn something if you're training and when I was at ITV, I was sent on quite a lot of training courses and some of them seemed to be a little bit kind of paint by numbers. It was almost the hard part was doing the deal with the HR bosses at ITV and now they're just kind of freewheeling down the hill doing the gig almost, and that, which quite often meant um, they weren't particularly enjoyable or memorable, <clears throat> whereas... I approach a little bit differently. For me, I sort of see workshops almost as a hybrid between a, you know, a gig and a training session, not just to be cracking gags every two minutes because there's got to be tangible business takeaways at the end of it, but learn about who the company are, learn about what their challenges are. Have they been in the news? Who are the people in the room? What's their seniority? You can often get a list of delegates before you start. Um, Learn a little bit about them, you know. That gets quite a lot of cut through. A general rule about any um, public speaking, I think, is that the less people have chosen to have wanted to have been there, the more you need to make the start of it about them. That's true in comedy, and I think it's true in training. It's also true in you know lots in, in any kind of communication, really. If you just, if people feel like they're being spoken at instead of with, they can quickly just kind of drift off, and then unless you're careful, everyone in the room's got their arms folded, looking out the window. <laughs> Yeah, I like that, the idea of making the start about about them. I, I'm interested how you would do that 
I suppose in comedy and then how that relates to L&D, how would you make the start about them? You could talk about the, and we'd see comedy in a, it's just the venue, isn't it? So someone, you've got a promoter that has got together a hundred chairs and a microphone and a light and has decided to do a gig. So in that respect, they're all kind of strangers. But stuff that happens um, that's going on in the room is is quite a big... And the, the funny thing is, any ad lib that you do in a room, it doesn't actually need to be a really funny joke to get a laugh, because people are just on your wavelength. People are like, oh, okay, he's... Uh, He's just thought of that. That wasn't part of his script when he turned up. Like, I don't know, I did a gig a few months ago and there was this gigantic clock on the, on the wall behind the stage. So you look at the room, you know that everyone in the room is looking at whoever's on stage and a massive clock. And I just went on stage and said, oh, I'm really looking forward to being here. You seem like a lovely audience. And I always do well when performing in front of oversized timepieces. And, <laughs> and then I carried on. But that got a very big laugh. And that's, that's not, obviously not a joke that I spend, you know, hours bouncing a ball against a wall thinking about. It's just something that I saw and sort of said. But people get that in their sort of comedy environment. Um, it's with mean, these days with Google, it's very easy to do a you know Google news search about a company that you're going to, or if you're in a different part of the country, you could talk a little bit about that. You know, obviously anything that's complimentary worked quite well. I did the Leicester Comedy Festival a few years ago, the season that Leicester won the premiership. And they were, I think it's like February or March that the Leicester Comedy Festival's on. <laughs> and I just said at the start, before I start this, on behalf of football fans all over the country, nay the world, please win the premiership. And they all went crazy. <laughs> That's obviously a very simple thing to do. But I think there's a real, there's a real benefit and the benefit is kind of exponential. You get a lot more out than you put in just by making a couple of minutes about them when they start. Because then people are like, oh, I like this guy. This is about me, this is. And, you know, I mean, as we know, you don't obviously write a whole new course from start to finish, depending on whether you're booked in, you know, Leeds or Manchester. But anything you can do to tailor it, I think gets people engaged and listening a lot more than if you just, you know, like dead behind the eyes, like some teacher that you didn't like at school who's just talking to you about the periodic table and you think you've done this 500 times before. What do you care who's in front of you? If you can, you know, engage people. And then obviously it depends what the subject matter is as well, how you can bring that into what people do. And part of that you can do with whoever books you. But, you know, it's I always quite like getting as much feedback as I can early on when I do any session. So so what you're saying there about reading the room, really a lot of that is doing your research beforehand and then tailoring whatever you've got to whatever information you have. Yeah. What about when you're actually in the room itself? Because I imagine as a comedian, you always 
kind of looking at uh, or you're very aware of the reactions you're getting and, and around the room how 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 is that feeding in and, and how can we apply that to learning and development yeah very much so well there's um there's an exercise uh, funny enough that i do when i do communication um skills with a group there's obviously a whole stuff there's a whole load of stuff you can do about body language i mean people write books like loaves of bread on it and it's a fascinating subject with things like evolutional psychology but i think what quite a lot of people don't talk about when they um cover body language is actually reading your audience's body language like what what you do if you're not happy with how the room are listening to you everyone's obviously got you know the kind of if it's a comic that obviously be punchlines you know the kind of tish moment where you're expecting a laugh if you're running a training workshop it's not always as easy to um you know, ascertain exactly how well things are going. But there are kind of like, you know, punchlines of a narrative that you would be looking for a reaction from people. And yeah, if you don't get it, I mean, there are things that you can try before. I mean, I mean, everyone has a, everyone has, you know, sessions that are better or worse than others, you know, maybe the group's a little bit quieter and they're not as quiet as outgoing, but they're still getting it. Or, you know, they might be, you, you think they're getting it, but on the feedback forms afterwards is not as good as what uh, people think. So yeah, but there are definitely things you can do but yeah, I would say the main thing is getting input from people in the room. If you don't think that they are on board, ask someone for an opinion, ask for a show of hands to then try and get people back on side. But quite a lot of that, I think, is how you pitch the uh, start of it, you know, how you um, get people on board. Yeah, I think what you were saying then about asking people and getting them involved I mean, to some extent, obviously, that's just standard L&D behavior. But I think a lot of us will go into sessions with a structure about what we are going to do. And and we kind of feel we can't veer from that too much or we're nervous about asking for too much feedback in the moment because it yeah, right. may undermine our authority of being the, you know, the, the one at the front. But I think there is a lot to be said for almost co-creating the session as you go along a little bit. But also saying to me, how's it going? How's the pace? How's this? Is this yeah. useful? Do you want to dig into more of this or skip to another bit or whatever? Absolutely. I mean, you, you've got to you be very confident of your material. You know, if you've got something that, say you're doing a whole day and you've got, I don't know, half an hour on a section on the one hand, it's great to sort of be reactive enough and say, oh, you don't like this? Fine. <laughs> let's get rid of it but you don't obviously want to be ending half an hour early because you've done that one of the questions i ask people when 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 it starts is is this a is this voluntary have you been told to come and to find out what people say about that you know because that will make a difference potentially if it's if it's voluntary oh absolutely yeah to an extent the cat's already in the bag isn't it because they want to do it but whereas if someone says nah i'll be honest with you mate this is uh, my boss told me to do this. I can think of five things I'd pr- prefer to be doing than this right now. Then you go, eh, okay, and you kind of plot it in a different way. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for just 
being more open to that feedback in the moment and directing it and, and, and you know as you're going along saying to people you know is this valuable how could we make this more valuable how can we make this more useful is it applicable in your circumstance or whatever mm. and having those discussions and, and being willing to, to do so which as i say i don't think that many uh, D sessions i've been in are that willing to do they no. tend to have their i mean sometimes you've got to kind of have a script because you're trying to get a certification or something like that which to me is kind of the worst kind of training anyway but i won't go on to that yeah i could moan about that for hours right but yeah i think there is something around that kind of being willing to kind of go and, and respond to the room so i'm repeating myself so no 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 you let's... are i mean it, yeah i i agree entirely i think it's brave and you'd you'd either need to be experienced or super confident to do it but there's a real benefit to that and um yeah if you can do it right then you can make yourself look you know almost kind of bulletproof by doing that by by swapping something around of all you then need to do, of course, is come up with something else that is more interesting than the last thing that they didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is the thing, yeah. As you say, you can't just send finish early because that's a bit weak. That's yeah, a bit late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but there is, I mean, uh, you know, for, for things to be valuable to a person, only that person can say because they know their circumstances, their challenges and, you know, where they currently sit in terms of that knowledge and skills. Obviously, if you've got a room of people, that's never going to be uniform, but... I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of room there to get people involved, I guess. And, and well, how could, could we make this more useful? Why couldn't you apply this? And having those conversations. And yeah, yeah anyway, I'm so. now definitely repeating myself. There are kind of self appointed spokespeople for groups, aren't there? So you ask a question, 15 people, there will probably be two or three people that would think, oh, I'll chuck my two Bobworth in there. You know, most people won't, especially, I guess like british people if you want to go down that whole kind of like you know how you know different groups would you know british people tend to be relatively reserved and polite and you know would just kind of like politely kind of nod and smile the trick is getting a few of the influencers in the room on side saying oh that's really helpful i'm going to use that i've got a presentation tomorrow i'm going to use that in and that kind of gets everyone else going so part of it i think is identifying who the kind of alpha males and females in the room are do you do that in comedy are Uh, they kind of lead lead laughers Good. Yeah, 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 there are. I mean, re- audiences of less than, say, 20 are too self-conscious often. I mean, sometimes you can make it work, but you just kind of feel like Basil Forty hosting a dinner party or something like that. It's difficult, whereas, you know, above 20, audiences gain an anonymity that helps them laugh. But within that, there are definitely people that lead other people laughing quite quite often in comedy clubs though what's difficult compared with conducting um training is that you're under a spotlight and the rest of the room is dark so you can't actually see people so it's impossible to analyze body language of comedy audiences because you can't actually see them although you're giving the impression that you're making eye contact with them it's just it's just a bright light and then darkness Let's move on to your second point then. Let's talk about that, which you said was around storytelling. Yeah, that's right. Which obviously that's a bread and butter of of the comedian, but used much less in L and D. Yes, I mean it is. I mean there. Are, I mean some of 
my favorite comic people like say billy Connolly. you know how he can tell a story there's all manner of um psychological theories and studies that have been done on the benefits of storytelling you know if you get it right it's very very powerful you know it can establish trust you know common ground you can make a point you know like um I'm not particularly religious myself, but if you think about how all the sort of parables that Jesus told, you know, and to make a point about things, there's a couple that I use, like at the very start, I mean, I always think get them early, get them really early. And one point with storytelling, all storytelling, is that people only care about themselves. So you can tell a story about anything you like, but there's got to be something that relates to them in it. So, yeah, we, Smirk Experience, the tagline's like harnessing the power of comedy. So I would classically start a session by saying, uh, seven years ago, I had my first go at stand-up comedy. It was about 30 people in a room in Soho. I've since done 10 times that number, but for a first go, 30 is plenty. Someone described comedy as the biggest adrenaline rush you can get without jumping off a building, and they're right. The first 20 are mayhem, but then you start uh, getting into slightly calmer waters. I've since done a 1,000 gigs around the country. But the interesting thing for you guys is that at the time, I was a sales controller at ITV, and there were certain parts of my job that turned into a piece of cake when I started doing it. And I'll tell you what they are now. And that's quite a powerful way for everyone to kind of like, you know, nod their head and lean in a little bit and sort of say, oh, go on then, go on then, what? What are the links? Yeah, it's intriguing. Yeah, it is. It's intriguing. And it's not just a lecture about something that's in another world. It's something that can be applied to what they do. Yeah, I literally leaned in at that point. Right on. When you they, said, now uh, I'm going to tell you what they are. I was sitting back and then I sort of leaned in. <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm reading your um, body language over Skype. <laughs> yeah, I know we don't have the video on, by no, the way. So I had no way of seeing that. So uh, but, so you started the story and, and, and I think this is something that you see a lot in things like TED Talks. Yeah. Where people, oh, exactly. Yeah. You know, they say, I'm going to tell you a story. So I think if, if you do that, it's slightly overdone, I think. But... In, in what way would you, um, I don't know, let, well, I think we need to need an example here. So let's say you do a lot of training around communication skills yes. and things like that. What? How would, might you start a session on communication skills with a story? Uh, and, and, and then talk, talk us through as well a little bit about what you're doing. What we do for that particular workshop is to split it up into before, during and after. What comics do before they're on stage what they do while they're on stage and what they do after they're on stage in order to maximize their performance. One of the key things about storytelling from the books that I've read on it and my own experience is you want to make them as individual as possible. You don't want to be in a situation where you Google, you know, oh, courage. It's stories about courage and you'll just rattle off a story that everyone in the room knows, you know. If you can make them quite personal about you, I don't know if you're a rugby fan, for example. Not especially, no. No, you don't need to be to get this story. And I always make a point of saying it at the very start. I follow a bit of rugby and talking about a assessment afterwards. Um, there's a story about focusing on positives and not negatives. 
Clive Woodward, who won the World Cup in 2003. In his, I've heard of him, yeah. There you go. He done all right, in the end. He, 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 I read his autobiography, and he was a player in the 80s when it was an amateur game, which meant that he had a day job while he was playing. And um, he tells this story in his book. He said, I was a Xerox uh, sales manager. We pitched for different, you know, sales accounts going into big companies and giving them all photocopiers and printers. And he said, we would classically find out the result of a pitch Friday afternoon. And he said, if we won the pitch, we'd go and get drunk. He said, and if we lost the pitch, we'd come in Monday morning and we'd have a debrief and we'd all sit around a big flip chart and I'd say, right, why didn't we win that pitch? And someone would say, um, we weren't very knowledgeable. They asked us questions that we said we'd get back to them. Right, no product knowledge. Why else? Uh, we weren't as smart. They were all in ties and we just had shirts, not smart enough. And he said, we get this big list and at the end of it, I'd say, right, get back out there on the phones. He said, I wasn't very good as a um, Xerox manager, he said, but as the England manager, where I did all right, he said, I thought we'd spin that 180 degrees round. He said, if we lost a game, we'd go and get drunk and forget about it. He said, but if we won a game, then we'd have the team meeting and we'd, right, we've just beaten the All Blacks, lads. How did we beat the All Blacks? Well, the fly half played well. Fly half was, why else? And you end up with all this positivity instead of negativity. And they went and won the World Cup while being the number one team in the world. You could just say, oh, dwelling on negatives is bad, but dwelling on positives is good. And your audience would kind of go, is it all right? Well, I suppose I'll take your word for that. But that story you don't need to be a rugby fan, I don't think, to get that story and go, no, no, I get it. That's someone who's successful, who's focusing on positives instead of negatives. Maybe I will. And that's just one of a load of examples. But that that kind of thing to bring situations to life. No, it, I mean, it, as you say, you, it's, it's much more memorable and much more interesting. And it's the kind of thing that you might then pass on to somebody else when you go home or go to the pub or something with friends. You might tell that story. But there's no way you're going to say to somebody in the pub, oh, did you know being positive is better than being negative? Exactly. exactly. It's just not going to happen. Exactly. You know? Stories just stay stay with us. If you can get it right, you're tapping into something very, very kind of, um, very kind of primal, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, before writing, that was the primary way that information got passed down, wasn't it? I guess sitting around the fire and people telling stories, they couldn't just sit and watch telly or whatever absolutely so it was all, all about storytelling and i don't know i mean are they overused underused in learning and development i mean certainly my experience i would probably say underused and when i hear them used i think they're often poorly used so it probably is an area that a lot of people can tap that's my only my my own anecdotal observation others may disagree no 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 sure and one of the tips as well that they tell you is along the lines of I know we're going to talk about it later, but to do like finding your your voice almost, if you kind of think to yourself, what is what is my shtick here? You know, what what if someone was asked to describe me, what would they say about me? And it's a question of building up a story bank that ties in with your main messages. You know, if I don't know, saving the company money is something that is quite high on your agenda somehow 
then stories about things like that, about wastages and how to avoid them. Or if you're someone who can sort of like tell a joke or something, then you might want more amusing anecdotes. Or you might be someone who's compassionate. Or you might be so part of the the power of storytelling is to make it quite personal about you know something that you believe in and get i think as opposed as i said before to just googling stories about bravery and just rattling one of those off the more you can make it about you the more powerful it is that's really an interesting point because i think we don't that that point you're saying about what people say about you is that branding idea yeah we don't i think about that as much as facilitators i don't think I think a lot of us focus on the process of facilitation and engaging with the room and all that kind of stuff. Don't know if we focus that much on, I, I, I don't want to say branding ourselves. I think that's the, not the quite the right word. But I, I wonder if there is something in that. I, I've never really thought about that before. Yeah, I mean, it's something that comics spend a lot of time talking about, you know. I mean, things to like finding your voice and stuff like that, you know. But it's, if you were a top Trump card, what would be what would be your best things and what would be average and what wouldn't be very good and you know often you know most humans the deeper you look you work out some people are more analytical or creative or whatever it might be but yeah i think it's about playing to your strengths isn't it that's probably true of life i suppose not just um and being mindful of stuff that you obviously you're not as naturally good at maybe that would be something that you want to kind of work on to get it better at but uh yeah i think there's definitely something in that there's that old phrase isn't there right you can travel all all the way around the world but there's only one person you'll never ever meet in the flesh and that's yourself and it's all yeah how others perceive you well i think something that your point about the top trump card is interesting because being able to articulate that and being confident about what those top scores would be and then using that to kind of give you that, find, help you find your voice, that's, it's an interesting process. And we use that kind of thinking when we're doing things like leadership development. And, and this is the context I was going to ask you this question later, that, but I might as well ask it now seeing as we're talking about it. The, one important thing about stepping into a leadership role is you do have to kind of find your voice. Mm. Because it's for most of us, you, it's not an entirely hundred percent natural role. There is a, at least some percentage of yourself you have to leave behind, and there's at least some percentage of skills that you have to adopt and behaviours you have to adopt. So there is something around finding your voice there. So what what can comedians tell us about that that we could pass on to leaders or aspiring leaders? Yeah, about that process of finding your voice. It's something that comedians, or good ones anyway, are very conscious of. Successful comics have got strong brands. Like, for example, Al Murray is a character act, and you know that he's going to have all his views about Brexit and stuff like that. Tim Minchin's musical. Frankie Boyle does more sick stuff. Ramesh Ranganathan, he's quite grumpy when he's on stage. And... When you start out in comedy, they talk about finding your voice. And that is, what is it that works for you? What is it that gives you... I think what you're talking about, and it's the same as true in business and running courses or anything, it's about what is it that enables you to connect with a room? 
And in comedy, it's certainly true that all the people that you that I've just listed there, like Frankie Boyle might have started off making jokes about like a man drawer or something like what Michael McIntyre does. And that wouldn't work as well. There's a sort of old apocryphal story about finding your voice. I'm not even sure if it's true. It's one of those stories that, you know, sounds like a great story. And then when if you ever meet them at a party, they say, no, it's actually nothing like that at all. And you're gutted that you ever asked them. But Jack D, so the story goes, was a really happy-go-lucky, bouncy, smiley comic getting no luck whatsoever not getting any laughs, not getting invited back when he played a gig. And he said to himself, this is my last gig. And he said to the other comics in the room that were at the gig, I've had it with this. This is my last gig. You know, there's easier ways to earn money. I'm not going to do this. Went on stage and just went, no, so, hello. And everyone fell off their chairs laughing. And that... Uh, you know, so the story goes is how he kind of found his voice as being a, you know, a grumpy comic who, you know, hates the world. Not that he does, but you know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't have to be true, does it? I mean, you're making the point. No, it doesn't. I think it has to be authentic. It doesn't have to be true, but I'm not totally. I think people will see through if you're trying to be something that you're not consistent oh yeah no sorry i meant that, that story doesn't necessarily have oh, to be sorry, exactly sorry, true sorry. about jack yeah, d yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean i think i think your voice very much has to be authentic. yeah yeah it has to be <laughs> sorry sorry true we're we're at cross but yeah you're absolutely right whether it's true or not it's kind of a a relevant to an extent isn't it but uh no it, it's a great story i think what that comes to is just it's to do with emotional intelligence, isn't it? It's to do with empathy. It's to do with when you're with a group of people working out why they like you. What is it that makes people like you? You know, is it that you're compassionate? Are you caring? Are you analytical? Are you are you quite jovial? Whatever it is, working out what it is out of the deck of cards that were all dealt in life I suppose what are your stronger suits and working out how often you can play them I suppose that's what it comes down to isn't it is there any particular way that comedians do that in order to discover their voice well I mean the easy thing for I mean there aren't many easy things about stand-up comedy but one of the easy things is relatively straightforward to work out if you've been successful or not on account of whether people laugh or not so uh <laughs> I guess yeah it's fairly clear isn't it that so kind of feedback in that respect it's relatively binary you know you can tell if a joke has absolutely landed if it's this kind of watery, polite laughter that people don't really find it funny, or in some places it's absolute silence or even heckles. So in that respect, that's one of the things that's in a comedian's favour. You are in a, you know, a normal sort of 20-minute set. You're probably, depending on what style of comedy you're going through, you've probably got between... 10 and 15 pretty cast iron opportunities to work out if it's going well or not that you don't always get in other fields i suppose that's it's it's interesting so what we're saying here is essentially reflecting on what your strengths are working out what it is that when you a bit of trial and error i guess in terms of trying out certain 
personas that are authentic to you, but different parts of you or emphasizing different strengths of yours. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing what works and what doesn't. Exactly. But one thing I always say to people when I run various workshops is the handy thing for you lot is that none of you were brought up by wolves until today. This isn't your first interactivity that you've had with other people, you know, so things like reading a room, we all put on different hats the whole time, don't we? You know, if you go on a cricket tour with the lads, you will behave differently than if you're meeting your partner's parents for the first time, differently from if you're with school friends, differently if you start a job and go out for a first drink with your work colleagues. So a lot of these things that we're talking about are kind of social interactions that we all have. I think successful people are the ones that can analyse the interactions they have and work out what to bring to the front and what to kind of hide towards the back. I remember when when I was, I think probably towards the end of my time at university, I don't know quite why I did this, but I tried on this personality, I, I guess, of being somebody who was always wisecracking. Okay. And I, I don't, I say, I don't know why I did this, but there was, this, <laughs> there was a, a particular groups of people that I would go out with and I would deliberately kind of try and be funny continually. Right. And... To the point where it must have been quite irritating for them, I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> and it never it never landed well. And I just became increasingly unpopular with these groups. <laughs> and it, it's only now you're saying it that I realised I was just trying on different parts of my personality to yeah. see what worked. And that was that was one that clearly did not work. Well, there you go. Uh, the feedback could not have been clearer, you know. <laughs> um, I persevered for a remarkably long time now, now looking back about it. <laughs> Um, fortunately I did get the message eventually but I I guess that's what I was doing I just wasn't doing it cleverly or consciously or or skillfully if you if it makes you feel any better there are comics that have spent the last 10 years on the open mic circuit who are in exactly the same situation as you but have not come to the same conclusion that you have (laughs) I suppose yeah I should be thankful then I worked it out within a a probably less than 12 months I think it was where I where I oddly adopted that personality no. that misfitting personality no i know when you when you start off in comedy you are on the open mic circuit so you do five minute sets to audiences that largely comprise of the other 17 comics that are on the bill that night and there are some people there who should not be in mainstream society never mind with a microphone in their hands <laughs> talking about whatever they choose to share with their um <laughs> with the audience <laughs> so uh yeah some people are more self-aware than others but i think you know the success successful people are the ones that can read other people and work out how to get on with them yeah and facilitators that i have seen the the ones that perhaps a bit less experienced that i've seen that I, I can tell there is something missing in the, in that persona, not in every case by any means, but there is something missing in that persona at a bit, you know, where they need to kind of step more into a facilitator character yeah, in order to kind of be able to take the room with them. Yeah, totally. Okay, let's move on to the to the last one because we, we actually veered off from storytelling there to talk about this finding your voice thing because I, I find that particularly interesting. 
No. The last, the last thing you said was around performance assessment. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, a bunch of ways that, that you can do that. One thing that I did a lot as a comic, and I do actually quite a lot still now as, as a comic, but also as a you know course leader, would be to record what you do and watch it back. So what you can like, tape it on, on your phone. I mean, smartphones have all got voice recorders now. And if you're feeling really brave, you can buy a iPhone tripod for about a tenner off Amazon and set it up so you can film yourself do it. And it's not nice. You feel a little bit like Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange when he's got his eyes calipered open telling them that he's cured and he doesn't need to watch anymore. But you're learning. It doesn't spike. It just goes through the roof. If you record sections of every one that you do and play it back and make notes from it, if you, after, I don't know, five, ten times doing that, if you then listen to the first one that you mm. recorded, it would be like you were listening to someone else. You wouldn't even recognize it as you. And that would be torturously painful, like listening to someone scraping their nails down a blackboard or something like that, you know, but it will make you realize how far you've come. So self-assessment like that, I think, can be really helpful, definitely helps in comedy because, you know, you've got so much stuff firing through your brain when you're either doing a comedy set or you're, you know, facilitating a, a section. It's not always a, a session, I should say. It's not always easy to self-analyze as you go through. And another similarity between the two as well is that in comedy, you will think of ad-libs when you're on a stage in front of 100 people that you wouldn't think when you were writing a set before you went on. And exactly the same thing's true of facilitating a course. And obviously what you do then, if you think of a really clever, useful ad-lib that works really well, is that you write it down so it's in the set list for the next time that you go through. Uh, you can also look at 360 feedback is something that I'd like. I always like um, have feedback cards at the end of sessions for people to anonymously fill in what they thought about it. Sometimes I'll do a session with a colleague and uh, we might go for a pint or a coffee, depending on when we finish to talk about how it went, what could have gone better. And another thing that I tell people to do for the communication skills would be to keep a diary of a sort of three to one ratio, three things that went well and one thing that you could have done better. That goes a little bit back to the Clive Woodward story about emphasising positives over negatives. But that's something that can be really, really helpful as well, you know. And although you know these things, to bring them to the front of your mind and to actually write them down, there's a sort of positivity that's involved in that. I mean, positivity goes through all of the stuff that I do, actually. It's probably one of the most important things in life. I read a thing the other day that was saying that the break, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's relevant to an extent, like breakdown of mainstream religion in the UK one of the things that we don't have anymore are nightly prayers. 
and you sort of think what are nightly prayers and they are uh, it's giving thanks isn't it it's saying to someone write a list of everything that you're thankful for or that's positive in your life so you say oh my family my job my flat and where I live the area that I live in my little dog who hasn't had an accident on the carpet all week whatever it is that's positive stuff that you are verbalizing albeit to an imaginary god depending on what your view is on it but that fills you with positive and people the the point was that since religion's been in decline we're more de- depressed as a society and they were saying that that was one of the reasons that i thought was a, was a really interesting thing and a parallel with how you assess what you've done you know the fact of writing something down that opener killed it they were all eating out of my hand good opener i answered questions thought on my feet you know you put that down and you're like oh right i can do this and then one thing maybe the room wasn't set up exactly how you'd like it so maybe next time when you get a booking you might say to whoever's booked you how are you going to set the room up can i ask do you know can we possibly not have it like that but have it like this however you want it so um yeah i think it's always a temptation at the end of finishing one just to think thank goodness that's done but for me the last job is not finishing it the last job is assessing and kind of learning from it then you can go to the pub <laughs> yeah i wonder how many people really do that in learning and development i mean to the to the depth that you're talking about i can understand why you would in a very performance related discipline like stand up yeah well and a very competitive discipline i guess whereas lnd is much less so but actually getting to the point of filming yourself and then analysing your uh, your video footage, I suspect that's not done very much. I've got some other comics who can cross over into this, you know, running courses. And so I've watched them do it and we feed back a lot with each other. But I obviously don't know to a great extent what other trainers do. But, yeah, it's definitely one of the most... Um, one of the most useful things in getting better it's all about if you want to get better you know if you want to then you will if the motivation's there to get better you know sky's the limit absolutely i just was wondering how many people use that tool and i think it's it's a very good idea because you, as you no. said you go around the world you don't meet yourself you don't you, you have no idea what it's like to be trained by yourself or to be in a session that you facilitate you don't know what that's like. And the closest you can get to it is a video. And the second closest you can get, I guess, is feedback. I've taped loads of um, comic sets that I've done, so I don't, it doesn't bother me. But it's like the first time you hear your voice back, yeah. isn't it? You obviously do these podcasts. There must have been a time, probably when you were a kid, when you first heard yourself talk and you thought, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't sound like that, do I? Yeah, I've got used to my voice now. So I've got I've got past that, but I do remember that first time. I re- I got a tape recorder for Christmas, and I recorded Blondie's "Tidy's High" on for the radio, and then stupidly decided to put in DJ commentary between the songs that I recorded from the top forty. Oh my word! Yeah, I recorded over that quite quickly, but it was I know what you mean. The first time you hear your voice, and the first time you see yourself on video, and yeah, you can shy away from that and thinking, "Oh my God, this is horrendous," or you can embrace it and go, "Right, that's who I am. What am I going to do with it?" Oh, totally, totally. Like, you know, when I when I do the co- communication, you know, sessions with companies, you know, you talk about nerves. 
And, you know, people say, oh, I want to get to the stage where I'm not nervous, like good speakers. And I say the best speakers get nervous. It's not a question of not getting nervous. It's a question of channeling the nerves, channeling the adrenaline where it gets to a stage. So it gets to a stage where it can help you. And exactly the same is true of that. You know, successful people are the people that have had all the same obstacles, but have just gone over them as opposed to, you know, being some, you know, someone that's come down from another planet and can do it. They're not that. they're, They're just people that have addressed the issues and, yeah, got their heads around them. That's what I think. Yeah, they say that the most successful leaders are not people that didn't have imposter syndrome. They did have imposter syndrome. They just got through it. Yeah, totally. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah, the yeah. same principle. And when you stand up in front of a group of people want facilitating a learning session, you might ask yourself, who the hell am I? Why am I here? You might, or you might just crack on with it, you know, that you can't let that stop yourself, those kind of things. No. I just, no. I just wanted to make one quick point because you said about this three-to-one diary thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, having those those three good things, three things that worked well with the, with the one thing that could be better next time. And I just wanted to make the point that things like that are really useful to do when it comes to things like building up your confidence and building up your resilience. So when you're in that position of things not going so well, you can look back and think, no, actually, I am good at this. I know how to do this. I've done this before. And it really helps you push through. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And, you know, also looking at how how failure can actually help you as well, you know, like, you know, going, well, going back to the storytelling, one other quick story that I I read somewhere was that Henry Ford, who's widely regarded as one of the pioneers of the 20th century, actually bankrupted two companies on his way to to forming the Ford Motor Company. And you you sort of think, ah, right. And, you know, he wasn't failing. He was learning. That's what he was doing. But in fact, there's a comedy bit that I've done about that. Say you were a school friend of Henry Ford and you met him in the pub the night he bankrupted his second company. And you'd and you'd say, how's the how's the business going? And he'd say, no, bankrupt. And you'd say again. And he'd go, yeah, yeah, again, again. And you'd say, what, what are you going to do now? Work in a bank? And he'd say, no, I think I know where I went wrong. I want to have another go. You, you, you'd probably give him a little tap on the arm and say, yeah, come on, Henry. <laughs> it's not for bit, you. There's a bit of a pattern developing here, dude. <laughs> but obviously he would have the last laugh. And so, uh, yeah, it's about certainly as a comic, anytime something goes wrong, that's when your learning spikes. It goes off the chart. You could have 10, 20 gigs in a row, all laughs, landing, people coming up afterwards. Oh, can I have a selfie with you? Can I follow you on social media? It's when the needle scratches off the record that you have a serious word with yourself. And you're like, right, what? just happened why did 140 people in Luton decide they all hate you it's obviously not a nice place to be in you'd have to be something of a psychopath in order to actually go for it but your learning spikes goes through the roof because you think right what on earth just happened there and so part of it when things do go wrong is I think accepting that it's happened and picking out what you can learn from it but then getting back onto being positive i think that's the um 
right course of action there, I would say. What do you think? Yeah, as long as you re- learn the right lesson. Or, or, or a better way of saying it is I think failures like that can spike learning, but equally they they might not. I think there's still a skill involved in making sure that you capture the right lesson from failure. Oh. And you don't undermine your confidence and you do move, use it as a way of moving forwards, not backwards. Such as in your story of Jack D, you were saying that he was about to give up. Very much these failures can knock you down. So it's just there is definitely a skill in thinking, well, how can I actually use that to move forward, build myself up, not knock myself down? Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, someone told me a long time ago in comedy, you know, if if it goes badly, never blame the room, like the audience. And exactly. You, you, there's something that, you know, it's easy just to say, well, that didn't work. They're all idiots. They don't understand my genius. But especially, and this obviously now goes back to if you have taped it, to go through and say, okay, what was my opener? How did I start, you know? I once did a gig in Billericay, and by the stage was a large poster for the 90s garage duo DJ Luck and MC Neat. And I made a joke about they were performing at a New Year's Eve party that was coming up. And I made a joke about that New Year's Eve party. And it quickly became apparent that I was the only person in the room that didn't possess a ticket to that party. And the rest of the set consequently went very badly, which is why I now always start gigs and how you very often hear comics say, it's lovely to be here in Billericay. Whether it is or not, that was an example where I could have said, oh, that lot couldn't have taken a joke about DJ Luck and MC Nee. But the actual learning from that was don't turn up somewhere out of London and immediately take the mickey out of it because they'll just think that you're a flash Harry who just thinks that they're all plebs from Essex. Well, we come back right to where we started when we talked about reading the room. Precisely. The, you know, inappropriate, and being a, a northerner myself from a provincial city, there's nothing more annoying than someone from London coming in and kind of doing those tired old jokes about people in Yorkshire or whatever it might be. They really don't land very well. Just cause no. they, it's not because you've got no sense of humour. It's because I've heard it all before, mate. You know, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. That reading the room is 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 vital. Obviously, that you wouldn't. It's not quite so blatant in an L and D world because you wouldn't go in there and start making gags about that. But it's a similar point. Well, yes, of course. Well, you aren't you aren't looking for laughs the whole time in an L and D environment, but there might be something that you do for the first time, and your feedback forms aren't as high as what they were before. And so, if you're then analysing what you've done, it's possible to go, ah, that's interesting. I got that. I put that bit in in there that that isn't normally in there and that has then suffered from it you're right i mean sometimes you know if you're skillful enough to read the room and not get into that um make that error which is obviously is you know the a position that you're shooting for instead of having to save a situation where something's gone wrong but the next best thing once you've made an error is to work out what the error is you've made and to take it out of the act Exactly. Work out what the error is. That's what I was saying before about learning from those failures is yeah. realistically and precisely understanding what the error is. So we, we've come right back to full circle and I had the ambition to make sure these podcasts were shorter 
because I tend to sort of they, they tend to sort of go on sort of 40 50 minutes which I think a lot of people find a little bit too long at the moment we're at an hour and seven minutes although I've got to edit a bit out so I've completely failed in my intention to make these shorter and I'm going to blame you entirely for that I think <laughs> that's the learning I'm going to take away from this <laughs> I won't mind if some of it ends up on the um cutting room room for floor John now some of it will get edited out but um it will still be probably longer than I intended so entirely your fault <laughs> you're distracting me and and, and talking too much so but uh thank you very much for for sharing your thoughts on 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 what we can learn from stand-up comedy and i know people could there's links on our website to to your organization smirk so people can pursue that further with you directly if they wish yeah it's just smirkexperience.com is is the only only thing they'll they'll need to put in should they wish to and uh no thanks um thanks ever so much for having me on john i found it enjoyable and Funnily enough, what we were talking about, writing things down at the end of a gig or a session, this has been a situation where, you know, I've been kind of verbalising learnings that I've found since I've been doing this for the last three or so years. And so um, I can recommend coming on the podcast from a personal development capacity as well. (laughs) Well, that's very kind of you, Sam. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, John. Take it easy, mate. Cheers. Cheers.